welcome to episode 56 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to do sort of a 2006 wrap-up, looking forward to 2017 episode. I know that before we went on the holiday (laughs) break, we said we were going to do another episode about tropes, but... I figured that we'll kind of do a bit of a catch-up since it has been a while, and I know that our posting schedule was sort of sporadic Mm post-election, so this is kind of a little bit of a reset for the year 2017. Yeah, we are back to a weekly recording schedule, so we'll be back every week. Um, You know, we just had some stuff to deal with. (laughs) We we had some processing to do, and that processing Uh did... Involves some crying and raging and a lot of wine. And. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So, all right. Well, let's just talk about um, what our year was like last year in terms of reading, writing, doing all sorts of other stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. If we had any trends or goals that we met, didn't meet, all that kind of a stuff. All that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Uh, I guess I can go first. I. Had an abysmal reading year. Me too. And I think I remember last year when we were kind of setting goals and stuff for ourselves for 2016 reading-wise. And I I can't remember exactly what I said, but I felt like I was more ambitious. But I just, I looked back on my reading stats. And according to Goodreads, I read 77 books. But that's only because I I count rereads. Mm-hmm. And I believe like a third... About a third of what I read last year was rereads. So if the real number is probably something like 45 books, it wasn't a very good reading year for me. And I'm not quite sure why. Because I don't think, because it wasn't even, I don't think it was even the political climate. Because like the whole summer, you and I were just like, we are in a reading slump. Yeah. I don't know why either. I just could not. I started a bunch of things and just didn't finish. And it was no reflection on the books themselves that I was reading. It was just like me internally could not read for whatever reason this year. Yeah. My total was really low. I don't know my exact number because I didn't look it up before we started recording. But I think it's hovering around 50 books for the year, which is low for me. Yeah, I mean, the year before, so in 2015, I read about 100 books for comparison, so I'm not even close to that, right, this year. So, And I do read quickly, so I know a lot of people are like, oh my god, don't say that, you read a lot, but the honest truth is I do read very quickly. It is one of my superpowers, I guess, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was sort of, you know, something that I had to, not that I had to do, but it was useful when I was an editor and reading submissions, so... I don't know. I I can't remember having a reading slump this bad since I think 2011 was like the last time I had a really bad reading slump. And mm. I know that's kind of oddly specific to pull out, but I I remember I wasn't publishing at that time and it was sort of at the height of the dystopian thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't a problem with any of the books that I was reading at the time. It's just that they were all kind of similar in tone. 
And I think that's why I had kind of a reading rut problem. Like I didn't read a lot of new books that year and, and those that I did read, I don't think, um, I, I don't think I finished to be honest. So what about you? Yeah, I also had a really bad reading slump. I had a lot of do not finishes. I had um, a lot of rereads. You know, I worked my way through Harry Potter again this year and reread some of my old favorites again. And I'm counting those, you know, in my 50 count for the year. So if you strip out my rereads, the number of of new-to-me books that I read this year is really low. Um there were some highlights. There were some bright spots, some things that I really enjoyed. Um, I read Six of Crows for the first time this year, and the follow-up Crooked Kingdom came out this year as well. So those were, I, I think those were probably my best books of the year. If I had to pick my favorite reads of the year, it was probably those two. Um, I did read the Red Rising trilogy this year, which I really enjoyed. David and I read the first two books aloud, and then we started to read the third one aloud, and then I can't remember what happened, but life got in the way, so we didn't finish, so we'll probably pick it up again um, sometime soon. January is usually when we start our read-alouds, and then they kind of die off in the summer because there's just other stuff to do, but in the winter it's cold and it's dark, and there's, you know, it's nice to read out loud. Um, so I read a bunch of things that I enjoyed, but yeah, overall I did have a reading slump, I think. Yeah, there were standouts for me, but this is the year, I think this is a year where I can't think of a debut that really struck me or a new to me author that I utterly fell in love with. I think I struggled to find new work this year. Mm. And because if I look back on 2015, I read a lot of books from the library in 2015. And because you don't necessarily have a choice as to what order your books come in and, you know, you can't just pick up the ones you do want to read. I felt like I was just kind of a lot more open to reading whatever. And this year from the library, I think I didn't read a single book I checked out. I think I started Mm. a lot of them and then just never finished them. So I was struggling with a lot of new to me things. So all the books that I loved and enjoyed this year were from authors that I already knew I was going to Mm -hmm. enjoy. Um, And I think I had a better beginning of the year than I had a better end of the year. I think the end of the year just went out the window for me. Yeah. But but I'm including like all of summer in that too. So it's like the last last half of twenty sixteen just wasn't a very good reading year, despite me having read some excellent books in that time. Lee's books came out then, the you know, Sarah J. Mass's most recent book came out then, Seba Tahir's book came out then. So a lot of really great books that I did enjoy came out in that time frame, that second half of the year. I just they were kind of the only ones I read though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah. why I feel like it was such a slump. I just couldn't pick up very much anything new. Yeah. Do you have any books that you are looking forward to for 2017? Um, yes, I know because I'm keeping lists of them on Goodreads. Of course, now I can't pull any of them off the top of my head. <laughs> of course not. Oh, boy. Um, some of them that are coming out, 
in 2017, I have already read um, because I got galleys last year, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, obviously, our own Stephanie Garver's uh, Caraval is coming out, uh, and mm-hmm. that's really good, you guys. I've read it. It's just beautiful, and I love the world, and it's really great. Um, so there's that. There's, oh, um, Pierce Brown's new book in the Red Rising universe will be out in August this year as well. Oh. Iron Gold. I think it's about a... St- oh, so it's like really in the same series? I think, yeah, it's in the same series. I don't know much about it. I'm assuming it's a... I, you know what? I have no assumptions, to be honest, about what it what it's about. Um, but yes, it is the same universe. Uh, Kristen Kishore has a book coming yes, out this year. Yes, I'm so, I can't believe it. So stoked about it. I thought the last Libba Bray Diviners, not last, I don't actually know how long the series is. I thought the next Diviners book was coming out this year, but I am not entirely sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the Diviners, so I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um,. I'm trying to think of new authors that, you know, but authors that are, quote, new to me. Yeah. Because I don't want to keep going back to the same writers that I like. To the same people. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's a little bit unfair. I'm not giving everybody kind of an equal shot or a chance to mm-hmm. to do things or, or to impress. I don't want to say to impress me, but, you know, I do love yeah. finding, you know, something that unexpectedly touches or moves me. You know, like, that is something that I really love. So as far as, like, debuts and things like that, I'm just kind of... I had a couple, and then I can't remember. (laughs) What about Mm you? I'm really... My probably most anticipated book of 2017 is The Hate You Give. Oh, yes. um, By Angie Thomas. I can't wait for that book. Um, there's been some excerpts released online. So I think one of them is available on E! Um, Entertainment Weekly. And the excerpts, when you can find them, are amazing. Um, that's all I've read. I, I didn't read a galley or anything like that. Um, so that's the only taste that I've had of this book. But it was just so... It's just... it's. I just can't wait. It's going to be a hard book to read, I'm sure. Um, but I'm really... Really looking forward to that one. Angie is fantastic. Um, I love her. I'm trying to think of what else. Winter Song comes out in 2017. <laughs> As of this recording, <laughs> less than five weeks. <laughs> JJ's rolling her eyes. You were telling me earlier today how sick you are of your own book. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I came back from vacation to, I came back from vacation to see my cover flats. Which is basically just the book jacket without the book. <laughs> so um, so they gave me the book jacket and, you know, it's really lovely and exciting. And I wrapped it around one of the books that I had to, you know, kind of pretend to see what it would look like. And I'm super excited to get a physical copy of my book that I will never, ever read again in its entirety. <laughs> it just... <laughs> I, you know, I guess... I guess I will I will listen to the audiobook because I do love audiobooks and I think it is a different experience listening to a book than it is reading it on page so I think I will probably listen to my own audiobook but not actually read my book in its entirety again like I know what happens in it I don't need to reread the story <laughs> I have a question for you about rereads when you reread something <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. What are you rereading for? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think in general, I reread for two different purposes. And one of them I think is much more prevalent than the other. The reason I reread most often is to evoke a certain feeling or emotion in myself. Um, I call those comfort reads. I read them oftentimes at the same times of year, every Mm -hmm. year seasonally. Um, I read them when I need to feel certain things or want to experience certain things. It's, it's comforting. It's a comforting object. It, it feels familiar and safe. And I know it's going to make me cry in all the right places and laugh in all the right places and feel all the emotions that I want to feel. And so most often when I personally reread, it's for that specific emotional experience that I know that I'm going to get from those certain stories. Other times the, the other slim portion um, of when I reread is, well, I guess there's two other ones. One is really rare. And that's when I reread the first installment of a series. Cause it's been too long since it's been published and I don't remember what yeah, happens. Like a catch so up. I reread it before <laughs> the new one comes out. Like a recap. <laughs> I do that occasionally. Most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time I can remember and I don't have that problem, but sometimes, um, sometimes I do. Other times when I am rereading, if it's not one of those two things, then occasionally it is in a more academic or critical sense where I am returning to something that I haven't read in a long time and I am specifically reading it to look at it from a different perspective. That happens relatively rarely, but I find it happening more often now, um, as I think about books I want my daughter to read eventually, I, I read them again um, and think about them more critically or, you know, sometimes other things. Sometimes I'll have a conversation with a friend and, and they'll talk about a certain perspective that they saw in a book that I didn't see. And so I'll be interested to reread the book and go back with that in mind. So it's more of an academic application. Um, that doesn't happen very often, though. I would say that the bulk of my rereads are for those those emotional, you know, that, the, the emotion that I want specifically to get. I agree that most of my rereads are focused on the feeling that I want to recreate or relive the experience mm-hmm. of reading the book again, even though it's not going to be the same as reading it for the first time. But mm-hmm. especially my particular, my comfort reads, um, can reliable, reliably bring me to that emotional space. Um, so that's why I reread those, but I think sometimes that I do, sometimes I do reread books as you do like critically. Sometimes when I want to see how another author did something, I'm Mm rereading to see how rather than what, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm reading, rereading to see how they did this, how they plotted this, how, this was pulled together, how they managed to do this, how they managed to pull it off. So there's that sort of instructional kind of rereading. Um, and often those are rereads of books that are outside my usual genre. Um, Mm. so there's that. And then 
I think the other reason I reread things is to gain a new perspective. Particularly, this is stuff that I read years ago. Because stuff that I might have dismissed or liked years ago, I think when I reread them today, Mm -hmm. I might have a different perspective on it. So sometimes I do revisit older books that way, just to be like, maybe my own life experiences or what what I've learned since then will change my opinion of this book. So sometimes I reread for that reason. But the vast majority of the times that I pick up a book again is to experience whatever emotional high and low or catharsis um, mm-hmm. it it puts me through. And I feel like that was the vast majority of my rereads this year was just I didn't want... I was very conservative in my reading. And I mean that in that I just didn't try very much anything new. I didn't take a lot of risks. I pretty much went to my tried and true things. I wasn't... You know, so it was very, very risk averse reading this year Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, I would say the same. I had even originally planned when I started 2016, I was going to do the read harder challenge that's put out by Book Riot, where they have about 25 categories of different types of books. And some of them are really general, like read a fantasy novel. And some of them are really hyper specific. And so I was like, oh, I'll use this as a tool to get me to branch out and read, you know, a more... Um, different types of things than I would normally do, get out of my comfort zone. And I, I think I only crossed off like eight of the list and like, it was coincidental. It was like, I could bend the things that I'd already read to fit in those categories. So I had planned to have a really, um, you know, a different kind of reading year than, than I actually ended up having. Yeah, I did not finish a lot of books this year. And that's also relatively rare for me. I mean, I used to be one of those, like, I will have to finish every book that I read. Me too. But once I started working in publishing, I very, very quickly realized that just ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> so I stopped that. But even so, DNFs are pretty rare for me. I most, and that part of that is a function of because I read so quickly. So. You know, it, but I, a lot, and the other thing is, it's not only books that I didn't finish because of my mood or whatever. I didn't finish books by writers that I typically enjoy as well. For example, uh, Alison Goodman came out with The Dark Days Club, and I think I tried to read this twice. Me and this was too. books from the library. <laughs> this is books from the library. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is because I don't own it and I don't have time to go back and reread it, but. Mm-hmm. I checked it out from the library twice, and both times I didn't finish that book. And it wasn't because I don't like the writing. Yeah, I enjoyed the, the parts is exactly that I read. up my alley. Yeah. It, but it just, for some reason, I just could not finish that book. And I don't know why. And again, it's not a premise mismatch because it is a book that is exactly up my alley. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one was Maria V. Snyder's Touch of Power, which I think I read like <gasps> the first three chapters of. No, you didn't tell me this one. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Well, I no. have it. I own it. So I fully intend to read it, especially because I think Maria V. Snyder's coming out with a new book in the study series mm. this month. So I plan to read that too. But like, I just. And I love everything else I've read of Marie V. Snyder. Mm-hmm. I think last year, I think I binge read like nine books of hers in a row. Um, 
But for some reason, I just like, and I liked it and I know I'll probably like this book, but I just think I got like three or four chapters in and then put it down and didn't feel the need to pick it back up. Yeah, that would happen to me too. That happened to me with Dark Days Club and with most of my other do not finishes. Um, It's like I'd get that warning from the library, like this title will expire in three days. And I would be like, meh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you must, I haven't opened it in a week and a half. Sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it was just really not, I wasn't committed on my end. And most of them were books that I think I will enjoy. And I actually um, like that my library keeps like a list of the things that I've requested and so on. Cause I know that I'll go back through that list and then re-request the same books so that I can, you know, just read them again and actually finish them this time. And I'm sure I'll enjoy them, but I don't know if we like caught it from each other via the podcast, like <laughs> where we caught this reading slump and just passed it back and forth. Or if this was like a larger thing that affected readers in general or what, I feel like just this is, of course, anecdotal, but I feel like a lot of people that I have have spoken to have also said that they were they just had a slump in reading this year. And, you know, one could say that it was partially due to external factors for a lot of these people. But I, I don't know, it just seems to be kind of a slumpy year for a lot. And it isn't again, it isn't because of the books that came out. It's just just kind of a slumpy year maybe and also because let's let's I don't know we do joke we did joke that 2016 was kind of the worst year but I also feel like that is like objectively true that it was just a terrible year yeah kind of all around <laughs> of course on a personal level so many of my icons and influential idols from my youth and childhood died last year but I, you know, and then there was the political climate, which was pretty terrible. And then just a lot of horrible things going on around the world. I just, I don't know. It just felt kind of like not a very good year. And so I don't think it's just us passing the slump back and forth. I think it's kind of in general, but that's just me. Or maybe that's just me trying to justify it to myself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really, I don't really set out reading goals per se. I'm not somebody who's like, I have to read X number of books, Mm -hmm. but it just, it just, I, I felt like I wasn't trying very hard and I wasn't motivated to try very hard to, to read this past year. So (laughs) yeah, didn't see a lot of movies and I didn't see that much TV. So I don't know what I was doing with my time. I don't know. Sleeping, reading. You were revising. No, that's true. I was reading. I was writing and revising. But even so, I feel like, what was I doing in my spare time? Like, I can't, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't watching a lot of TV and I wasn't watching a lot of movies either. So (laughs) what was I doing? That question always haunts me. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like... I feel like I could have been more efficient with my time. Mm. I think that's basically what it is. I I could have been more efficient with what I was doing. And of course there is that I didn't, you know, mental health is of course very important, but 
and I did have, I did struggle with it last year. And, you know, I think I mentioned on the podcast too, that I had gone back on medication and was figuring that out. And that's good on my, like on my end, that's, you know, I mostly sorted itself out, but I just feel like I wasn't efficient with my time. Yeah. Just kind of, eh. and you're not a resolution person, right? So you don't know. Are you? I mean, yes, because I need external things to, to motivate me. <laughs> As we've discussed on the on the podcast, JJ and I are like the odd couple here. <laughs> we, our lives run completely differently, and yet somehow on complementary tracks. Um, I am, although I have not made any official actual resolutions this year. I haven't said, like, I resolved to do X, Y, and Z, um, because it's never actually worked for me. I don't think I've ever made a New Year's resolution that I've kept. And so, but I did begin January across the board with um, a, a personal resolve to do better um, in lots of different areas, you know, be a better parent, be a better partner, be a better employee, be, you know, better at taking care of my body, be better, you know, at podcasting every week instead of <laughs> lying on the floor and wailing about the state of the world. Um, you know, so I have been thinking about those things. And one of those things is most definitely time management, um, just in my personal life, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good at time management in terms of work and other responsibilities that I have. But in my personal life, it's because I'm managing everything else more or less efficiently. I get home for my me stuff and I just feel like, oh, well, I just don't, I just don't have any energy left to do anything. So I'm just going to lay here on the couch and watch trashy TV because I can't bother to do any of these things, but then nothing ever gets done. And there are things that I want to do. And so if I don't make the time to do them, they're not going to get done. <laughs> so I'm trying to be better about managing my time personally this year. I think I, I, I sort of subconsciously pick words to meditate on mm. rather than resolutions. And so last year it was balance, which I was kind of good at and kind of not good at. It ended up <laughs> balancing itself out by the end <laughs> of the year, I think. Um, so balance was kind of the word I had chosen for myself last year. And I feel like this year is focus and or efficiency. I feel like that's kind of really what I'm trying to work on this year is being more efficient at things. Um, cause I did spend, you know, a, a lot, some of the balance part of last year was trying to balance work, trying to balance personal stuff, trying to balance creativity, trying to balance being an author as well. Uh, and my mental health and trying to get that in order. So I felt like I was juggling a lot of things that I was being overwhelmed by. And I feel like I have all those, moving parts more or less kind of going smoothly. So I feel like in that respect, I did achieve that, even though work-life balance has been all over the place for me. Um, so this year, I want to be just more efficient about... After having balanced those things out and got them running smoothly, I feel like this year I just want to focus on making them much more efficient and not um, sitting and procrastinating by, I don't know, rereading Twitter or something like that over and over and over again. So I feel like that's kind of what I want to focus on this year. 
because the um, it's you know what I feel like making resolutions is like being a plotter. <laughs> if I make a resolution, then I feel like well, okay, I've, I've put the emotional effort and energy into thinking about it, so I don't have to do it now. <laughs> Whereas if I just sort of set a broad, more general type of thing, then ah. you know, I don't know, maybe that's just. I, I do find that it is, I feel like a resolution is almost too big to wrap my mind around. Mm-hmm. So kind of letting myself take small chunks at a time, the way I would in a manuscript, just like one scene at a time, I think helps me get stuff done better than just kind of trying to be like, I'm going to do this and this month and this and this month and this by the end of the year. I just, I don't, I don't really work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, in many ways I wish I could work that way, but I have, lived for 31 years not working that way so (laughs) i just have to to accept the fact that this is how i function so looking back on last year were there any sort of trends you could think about in publishing or reading or anything like that i don't know if it's just that i had such an abysmal year but i can't think of any trends in my own reading, and I'm trying to think of, you know, wider publishing trends because there's always publishing trends. Um, and I really, I, I'm just drawing a blank on what the big trend was for last year. All right. So I have a theory about this. We are in a post trend publishing landscape. Oh, so there is no trend right now. I don't think there is. I don't think so either. The last, so the trend thing really kind of started with Twilight, I feel, because it didn't, if you look, and I'm specifically talking about YA, because adults Mm -hmm. don't quite have trends the same way. No. Um, But, like, I think trend publishing in YA definitely started with Twilight, Mm -hmm. and YA rode the paranormal train for years, and it was quite lucrative, and it worked. Um, and after, after the paranormal train came the dystopian train and then it kind of sort of tried to find its footing and people tried to make other things a trend, but I don't think that's the case. I think we are in a post trend landscape and I think we are in the age of the celebrity author. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think it's not like. I'm a celebrity and I wrote a book. I mean that there is a cult of celebrity around author figures. Mm-hmm. And this one I'm going to trace back to John Green. Because, you know, for a while people were like, oh, contemporary is a trend. But I think by the nature of contemporary, you can't have trends. Because right. contemporary is so broad and diverse and contains a lot of different premises and subjects. And it's really more of a setting than... Than an, than an actual specific subset of any kind of genre. And I only say this because The Fault in Our Stars came out in 2012, I believe. And uh, yeah, I think it was 2012. And he was kind of, John Green anyway, was kind of at the height of his YouTube personality thing mm-hmm. that he was he was doing. Now, I'd actually been watching the vlog brothers since he first started it since it was brotherhood 2.0 i believe and that was that was 2007 so that was 10 years ago 
So he'd been doing this, he's been doing this YouTube thing for 10 years, but I do think that there is somewhat of a cult of celebrity, and I think social media has exacerbated it to some extent because now authors are more accessible to their fans. And sort of by defense mechanism, I think authors also have to develop a persona to better interact with and protect their inner selves from, you know, kind of the outside world. So that's my idea about, that's my theory anyway, about the publishing landscape in YA as it is today. And I think that's also why I had a hard time with newer authors this year. And I hate to say that because it sounds so terrible, but most of the books that I was looking forward to or that I enjoyed were from brands, quote unquote, that I knew already that I was going to enjoy. So I know, does that sound really disheartening? Boy, we're at least continuing our trend of <laughs> I know. puncturing everyone's bubbles. <laughs> I know. Well, it is really interesting because it, it hasn't, um, you know, readers haven't had this kind of access to writers before and, or, you know, or even celebrities, celebrities, you know, like actual, um, you know, famous actors and actresses and things like that are, are navigating this whole weird landscape of social media now and giving fans access to them that they never had before. And that access is strange and strange phenomenon can come out of that. Um, sometimes it's really great and fandoms are really, you know, fans are really wonderful and, and amazing. And it's amazing to be able to interact with people who read your book and loved your book. And, um, I also think it's good and important to, you know, listen to and absorb, um, feedback that you get from readers, you know, that might be more critical. Um, don't necessarily respond to it or argue with them, but just absorb, (laughs) listen, (laughs) um, you know, and and so I think that social media is really valuable in that way, and giving access, um, connecting readers and authors together in that way. But at the same time, um, I think there's some negatives to it sometimes that aren't aren't negatives in you know necessarily the way any one individual author uses their social platform just drawbacks to the existence of the social platform in general. So like, you know, fans can get really, um, possessive and, you know, kind of get a little bit out of control and can kind of overwhelm an author. And if your readership does kind of form a mob um, that's connected to you, whether you encouraged it or not, or want anything to do with it or not, or whatever, you know, those people are loudly declaring themselves to be your fans and are associating you with their negative behavior, regardless of, you know, your involvement or non-involvement or whatever. Um, so that sucks a little bit when an author wants no part of that and is just, you know, swept along anyway. Um, I also think, there's, you know, this discourse that we see, uh, the first person who comes to my mind is JK Rowling, who's on Twitter, uses Twitter a lot, and obviously has an enormous fan base, who asks her questions constantly, and she answers them. And slowly I, ruining my yeah, right? love of like, Harry Potter. <laughs> pretty much, like, 
pretty much. And so the argument is, these are her characters. It's her world. She created it. She can, you know, give us the answer and, and whatever we want. I mean, true, fine, sure. J.K. Rowling invented it. If she wants, you know, to come down definitively on one interpretation or not um, of something involved with her stories, then of course. But authorial intent is not super interesting. And the most amazing thing about the Harry Potter books was how much space was available in that universe for readers to imagine their own take on things. I'm not even talking necessarily about fan fiction, although there's some phenomenal Harry Potter fan fiction out there, but just ways of thinking about that universe, the world of Hogwarts, the wizarding world, and how things work, and how different people exist there in that world. And and there's so much space in that universe that isn't covered by the books that leaves room for interpretation and imagination. And that's such a magical, powerful experience as a reader. And it's why so many people love those books. And when fans introduce a theory or, or a suggestion or a, you know, anything that they've come up with and JK Rowling rules on it definitively one way or the other, or otherwise imposes her authorial intent on these extra textual things, these things that are not in the books, um, it, it does kind of ruin it. It does put a damper on that imagination because I mean, it makes at the, end the of world the day, smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, authorial intent doesn't matter. You didn't put it in the book. Like it's not there. It's not in the text. I'm free to imagine whatever I want. If JK Rowling doesn't approve of the serious Lupin pairing. I actually don't know if she does or not. Um, but if she doesn't, and that's a, a ship that I see textual evidence for in the book, then I should be able to enjoy that and find that and, and, and read that into it without her coming in and saying, no, you're wrong. That isn't there. That's not what I meant. Um, it, it does, it makes the world smaller. And so she's the person who comes to mind when I, when I think of this phenomenon, but in some ways I think that this access and allowing authors and readers to have this kind of dialogue back and forth, um, you know, while some people gobble up every little bit of Harry Potter, you know, like trivia or, or every little bit of knowledge or scrap of, of anything that they can get out of her. Um, for other people, it's really like, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, she's closing, you know, there was so many, there's so much in that world that you could imagine, you know, based on whatever you, you brought to Harry Potter, you, you as a reader personally brought to Harry Potter, there's so much you can imagine. And then to have the creator rule definitively is basically shutting doors a little bit. Like mm -hmm. that's an avenue that is, you're not going to go down because I said it doesn't exist. So it's just closing them off one by one. And again, it's her work. So she has, she has every right to weigh in on what she thinks, but I, that access kind of is slowly ruining Harry Potter for me. And it doesn't ruin my love of those books, but it does sort of color a lot of things. Like, for example, The Cursed Child, which is technically canon. And I hate it. Well, yep. no, I don't hate it, but I hate the fact that it's canon. I guess I'll put it that way. There are things I loved about The Cursed Child, but as a work of canon, I hated it. And I just don't like that it, that exists because giving us 
another definitive story gives us less room to imagine. And so there's there's kind of that problem with the access, I think, with with writers and readers. And, you know, I think it's also we're all still trying to work out boundaries. You know, where does JJ, the fan and the reader end? And where does JJ, the author, begin? Where does JJ, the writer and artist and where does, you know, the author begin? Like all that sort of all those boundaries, mm-hmm. I think, is really hard to navigate. Personally speaking, so I went to Y'all Fest this past year, and this is the first Y'all Fest I've been to where I have a book coming out. And previous years, I've always gone to Y'all Fest to see my writer friends. And I would have been, it's a little bit different for me, I suppose, because I've been friends with a lot of these writers often before they got their deals. So it's just, for me, it was it was kind of an opportunity to go and to see them in this setting and in this town and have a good time. But this is sort of the first, and I wasn't on any panels or anything, and I basically went as a fan or reader. But it was very strange because my publisher was there giving away galleys of Winter Song. So people had galleys of my books, and people also recognized me. And that was very strange to me because I was like, I'm not here because I, if I were there on a panel, I think I would be acting differently, reacting differently. I would have my extrovert performative face on and not kind of me as the spectator face Mm -hmm. on. So it was very strange. And I do apologize if you met me at Y'all Fest and I came across very cold and rude. But I'm a little bit like a cat. You know, you can sort of look at, you know, I can preen and you can admire me and then no touchy, please. Just, <laughs> um, you know, I, I I personally need that distance. I need a little bit of space for me. So if we're in there in a capacity where I am, you know, I am performing my authorship for you, that's fine. But and I guess some of this comes from growing up in Los Angeles because, you know, I grew up in L.A. and L.A. has a lot of Hollywood stars and people who live there and live their lives. And as a courtesy, if I ever came across a star, I didn't approach them. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. living their lives. And, you know, yep. that was just the mentality that I grew up with, that they are being a private citizen right now. And therefore, I'm not going to, you know, impose myself upon them. And not that I'm saying you know, a fan or a reader is going to impose themselves upon me. It's just that I, you know, in that situation, I was there as a private citizen and not in any official capacity, which was a little strange. So, you know, it's that it's the finding the boundaries that I find a little bit hard to navigate. And I think a lot of other authors do too, because where do you, the person out, like the person, person end and you, the persona begin. Yeah. So, I don't know. Do we have any other thoughts about trends or reading and writing and anything like that? Not really. I didn't talk about writing at all because I didn't really do any. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I do have lots of plans for that in the coming year. We'll see what happens. Um, I am excited about reading in 2017, I do feel like I've climbed up out of my slump. I guess it remains to be seen whether or not that's true, but I do feel more hopeful and enthusiastic about reading. 
I also feel more enthusiastic about reading. I think because I have identified a little bit that I was just being really risk averse last year. Yeah. And I feel maybe I just needed that time to recover. Who knows? But I think I'm more open now this year to taking risks again. And I think that will help my reading immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, so then why don't we just move on? What are you reading? Are you I reading am anything? reading, yes, I am reading The Secret of a Heart Note by Stacey Lee, who Yay. is a pub crawl contributor. Yeah, um, I'm very excited. It is my first book of 2017, and I really like it so far. Um, I'm only about halfway through, but it's really, it's really enjoyable. I am reading Wayfarer by Alexander Bakken, who is a pub crawl alumna. And that is the sequel to her book, Passenger, which came out last year. So I'm excited about that. I, towards the end of the year, <laughs> the first books I read this year were actually erotica. I, okay, that new author to me that I binged pretty much everything on was Sierra Simone. So, so read everything she's written so far, and now I've run out of things to read by her, and I'm very, very sad and disappointed. Um, so I read American Queen which is, it's an Arthurian-inspired story. So uh, it's about Arthur Lancelot and Guinevere if they were members of the American political system. It's, I really like it. It was, it was excellent. So American Queen was what I read. And then I read kind of another historical series of hers, and then I started Wayfarer today. So that's what I'm reading so far. Did you consume any new media? Do you have any off-menu recommendations? Um, I watched the first episode of the OA and pieced out. It was not for me. And then my friend spoiled it for me, so I found out what happens. And I'm very glad that I pieced out because... It does not sound like my kind of a thing. I binged on a ridiculous TV show um, the week between Christmas and New Year's. It's on Netflix. It is a show that aired already in Canada, and then Netflix got um, the U.S. rights for it. It's called Travelers. It stars um, Eric McCormick, I think is his name. He Will from Will and Grace. Um, oh, he yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, he's the star. And it is a show about um, humans who, in the future, humanity is on the brink of extinction, the world is terrible, and humans have learned how to send their consciousness back into the 21st century. Um, at the moment of their host body's death. So there's a normal human walking around in the 21st century and they're about to die. And moments before they actually die, the people from the future send their consciousness back into the body and then avert the death so that the, the host consciousness is dead, but the body is still alive and now being piloted by this person from the future. And they're called travelers. And they all, you know... Millions of them have infiltrated our society and are, you know, on missions um, with the goal in mind of helping humanity not 
completely fuck itself up or screw itself up. Sorry. <laughs> I'll bleep that one bleep out. That right out. Um, <laughs> it is. There are some acting performances that are really amazing, actually, and then some that are just kind of like you know, okay, whatever. It's not an amazing show. It's not brilliant. It's not, you know, whatever. For all the sci-fi premise, there's really not any special effects or any weird stuff. It's just kind of like a drama with a weird sci-fi twist. Because these these people now, these travelers now need to not only carry out their missions to change the future, but also, like, maintain their cover as their host persona. So there's some interesting things going on. It scratches the itch for me that... Back in college, um, marathoning episodes of Law & Order SVU used to scratch. It's nothing like that show whatsoever, except in that feeling that I could binge watch like four episodes while hungover and like have that same (laughs) feeling of like, this is interesting enough that I'm like willing to lay here and watch it, but it's not complicated in any way. And so it's not challenging. (laughs) It's not challenging me in any way. It just, it was like, I was hungover after Christmas (laughs) because I had too many too many parties to go to during the holiday season. So I had like a three day hangover because I'm old now. And if I drink more than two glasses of wine, I'm just going to be hungover for the rest of my life. Yeah. So I just Even no matter how much couch. water I drink, I'm still like matter. next morning. It doesn't matter. So that time between Christmas and new year's, I just laid on the couch and I just watched the entire season of this show. And it was perfect for that. <laughs> I can't like, I don't know that I can recommend it as like, this was a great show. Like, but I highly enjoyed it. Very enjoyable. Um, but not revolutionary in any way. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? So aside from the erotica, I think I spent the kind of last month of 2016 with a lot of kind of cerebral science fiction. So, um, I saw the movie Arrival with, uh, Amy Adams and the human potato that is Jeremy Renner. (laughs) (laughs) I just, he was perfectly fine, to be honest. I just don't think he has any charisma. So, um, the human potato comic comes from Glenn Weldon of pop culture, NPR's pop culture happy hour. But every time I see him, so one of my old roommates in New York City is, um, Sarah LaPala, a literary agent, and she also is not a huge fan of Jeremy Renner, and she once described him as having a face like a toe every single time. That is so accurate. (laughs) It is. It's so great. So anyway, regardless, he was perfectly fine in the movie. Um, But I was very surprised by how much I really loved Arrival. I thought it was beautiful and it was, it is, it is, it does strike that balance between emotional and cerebral, which I do like. It is basically a movie about first contact with aliens. And unlike movies like Independence Day, it's, it's, it focuses on how do we communicate with them? What does their language teach about us? How does language change the way we think and how we communicate? Um, and it was really gorgeous, and I really loved it. It is also based on a short story uh, called The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. So I actually bought the anthology of uh, short stories that he wrote and read them, and I thought they were excellent. I thought they were 
you know, they were they were actually kind of what I needed. That that sort of cerebral made me think, made me you know contemplate. He he does sort of return to these themes of of self self identity, consciousness, how we create ourselves, you know, our identity and and how we think and how that forms who we are. And it's um, there. I do highly recommend Ted Chiang. I thought he was fantastic. So because of the mood arrival had put me into, I went and reread Contact by Carl Sagan, which was a book I really loved when I was a teenager. I also really liked the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Um, I think that movie is kind of dated now (laughs) and I think Arrival does a much better job, but in principle, it's still the same thing. How do we make first contact with an alien culture? And what does that say about us as human beings? You know, and it's ultimately a very, a very optimistic sort of way of thinking about things. And so I really enjoyed that. So I reread Contact and then I watched Westworld. I don't know what I feel about Westworld. I think it's good. I really do. I think because it it does grapple with the questions of what makes us human, what makes somebody, what gives somebody a soul, what is true consciousness, all that sort of stuff. Because Mm. the premise of Westworld is that Westworld is basically the ultimate theme park. It's like a Wild West theme park and it's populated with androids and these androids are incredibly realistic. They have, you know, and they react to their environments. They have artificial intelligence. So what differentiates us and them, aside from the fact that they are essentially artificial? And and Westworld also has these interesting ideas about narrative loops, because each of these characters have some degree of autonomy. They have a narrative loop that they are supposed to fulfill, but within that loop, they do or say different things and they can change. And they're, and then the question of whether or not they're starting to grow and evolve and change and react to their environment. So what differentiates them from a human being? It's really, really fascinating. And I really did enjoy Westworld. There is a trigger warning. If sexual assault and violence is hard for you to deal with, then I would say absolutely stay away from the show. I but I would also say that it is not gratuitous because the themes of autonomy and power are prevalent throughout the show because human beings have such power over the androids, you know, and, you know, what, you know, the notion of free will, whether it's consent and all that sort of stuff is kind of all in that show. Um, so I'm still kind of processing my thoughts about Westworld. Like, it's not like Game of Thrones for me, where I have feelings about... I have feelings about Game of Thrones. I don't have feelings about Westworld. Like, the characters are pretty good, but I don't have any huge attachment to them the same way I would with some of the other some other shows that I really loved. But it did make me think a lot, and I did appreciate that. Also, the music from Westworld is excellent. So I do recommend, even if you haven't seen it, just like listen to the music because it's really good. Uh, they, the composer is the same guy who did Game of Thrones, Ramin Jawadi. But I just remember watching the first episode and he does a cover of the Rolling Stones, Paint It Black, in the style of Ennio Morricone, who did 
all of the famous sort of Western themes, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all that sort of stuff. And it's so good. And he covers other songs like Black Hole Sun and like the style of a rinky-dink Western bar piano. It's just really, really cool. So even if you don't want to watch the show, I do actually recommend getting the soundtrack because it's really good. And so there's that. And I also saw Rogue One, which is killing me because Kelly has not seen it yet. So we have not been able to discuss. (laughs) Um, Soon, 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 soon. Very soon. So I do, I did, I really did like, I did like Rogue One. I will say that it does feel different from the other Star Wars movies. And I think that's partially on purpose. And I think it's also because it's the only movie that's not about the Skywalkers. (laughs) You know, it's not, it's not part of the family saga that is the rest of the movies, like episodes one through seven. That's basically like, in like a Korean drama terms, would be like a di- like a dynasty kind of multi generational family saga is essentially what Star Wars is, but that is not what Rogue One is. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I loved the characters, um, so I I would recommend it if you have not seen Rogue One. Um, related to that, Kelly and I probably will be doing our prequel watch and discussion at some point this year. Um. You can't see either of our faces, but we're kind of like, oh god. Do we have to? I think it'll be good. Should. It'll be good. It should. It, it it'll be good to discuss what went wrong with all of these anyway. Um, so yeah, that's basically the media I've been consuming. So let's see. I think we did have some questions, so let me if, pull them up from my email. So we did get a question via the contact form from someone named Sean. And he was talking about moving into a sales rep position in the book industry. Well, it's, I think, like any other position in publishing, really. (laughs) You just have to try and get in and find positions that are open. Um... You know, you can go to like bookjobs.com, Media Bistro, and see if they have positions for sales representatives open at at these various publishers. Uh, it does help if you have sales experience. It doesn't necessarily matter whether or not you've had book sales experience, but sales experience is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's honestly sales is not as department of publishing that I'm particularly well acquainted with. I do have some friends who who do work in sales, but I think that may have to be a guest post for the blog itself because I don't have much more information beyond that, to be honest. I know a lot of sales reps actually did get their start as booksellers. You know, they were booksellers at a bookstore and then moved into a sales representative position, often because sales reps do have relationships with booksellers. So, right. Yeah. People at bookstores will be book buyers and will buy, you know, books from publishers and then you get to know people and make connections and yeah. So that's probably a, uh, that's probably a topic for, uh, 
somebody else to write about on Pub Crawl for us. <laughs> we are willing to give our opinions on many things, but there are things that we do not know. There are some things that are a little bit beyond our knowledge sphere. So. <laughs> okay, so then we also had another question from Caitlin, which is... Hi, I just wondered if you might address the issue of author responses to problematic readers slash reader opinions. It's something I've seen a few times on Twitter where readers engage in discussions about diversity and representation in a way that may or may not reflect the views of the author. I thought it might be relevant for someone at Pubcrawl to discuss this issue as it does continue to come up. I think it also ties in with the discussion of authors of whether or not authors should engage or disengage from political conversation on social media, which is particularly relevant right now. I know it can be a very controversial thing to talk about, but it would be interesting to dissect this, perhaps even from both the author and reader's perspective. So this is quite a meaty question and mm-hmm. maybe does deserve a, its own episode. Um, and we did touch on this a little bit, I think, about, pers- you know, persona, you know, social media persona and, and and that, so I can, I think maybe we can sort of reserve this for a separate episode to discuss. Um, also, maybe we want to talk about diversity and representation in that discussion as well. Um, yeah. But Kelly and I have repeatedly said, do not engage. <laughs> do not double down. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think this is an interesting question because she's asking about, you know, when people, you know, maybe are saying things that you... Um, that don't represent your views accurately. You know, if you are all for diversity and other people are, you know, your readers are against diversity, you know, I, I think you have to, if you decide to engage politically, you have to make your own political views clear and then that's it. But I think JJ is probably right that engaging with specific people is not a good idea. Yeah. With regards to political conversation, I am fairly politically vocal on Twitter. I mean, if you follow me on social media, I think you'll know exactly where I stand politically. Um, so I do use Twitter as a way to talk, not necessarily discuss, but you know, I do express my opinions that way, but I don't engage with trolls. I don't, Uh I don't mind discussion because I grew up in a politically mixed household. My father is an independent and my mother is a Republican. So I, I've grown up with a politically mixed household. My family and I still get along very well. And we don't, ha- we even have discussions over Thanksgiving. Um, so I don't see a problem with discussing different worldviews, but I feel like the political climate right now is different. So... But I also do firmly believe that Twitter is your own space as both an author and a reader and how you choose to use it is up to you and the consequences of how you use it. It's also something that you have to think about and how you handle the consequences is also up to you. Yeah. 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 I think, I do think we should expand this into a, into a larger post. I think that's probably a relevant, um, podcast topic. So yeah, I think there is, I think that's it then. Do we have any reviews? I don't believe we have any new reviews from the last time we checked. Then again, we haven't really been online or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Y'all We're coming out of seclusion. We've been secluded. (laughs) That's all for this week. Next week, we will be actually starting afresh. We're going to do 2017 anew. 
So we did a recap episode this week. So next week, we're actually going to revisit our Publishing 101 series, which we actually talked about over a year ago. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of go back into the intro courses, talk a little bit more about querying and representation, and also maybe try and answer questions if you guys give them to us. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.